Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to this week's episode of Mill Liberty. I'm your host, Caleb Franz. This is the voice of liberty for a new generation. I'm thrilled to have you here this week. This week, we are going to be getting into one topic that I have wanted to do for quite some time. I've wanted to, uh, we, we've touched on it a little bit, but not not uh, to the extent that I have wanted. We certainly haven't devoted an entire episode to it. Uh, and that is uh, the topic of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And if you were like me, or if you still are a little bit like me. Uh, the the entire topic is a little bit confusing, and it doesn't really make sense the first time you hear it. It's it's hard to comprehend. So uh, that's why I brought in uh, Jeffrey Tucker. Uh, we've had him on the program before. He was actually our our first uh, main guest that we had on this program, and this is his the first three time guest that we have had. I, I bring him on here to discuss Bitcoin and and all the exciting possibilities that Bitcoin has in the future, its history, how it works, and uh, and we and we discuss some other things as well. So, uh, if this is the episode that you definitely want to listen to and share, if you have ever had any questions about Bitcoin or any questions about cryptocurrencies, how how they work, how it uh, became. Uh, even a thing in the first place and, and what gives it its value. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my discussion on Bitcoin with Jeffrey Tucker. All right, Jeffrey, welcome back to the program. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me back. All right, so I, I've wanted to do this for some time um, on uh, on Bitcoin specifically because it is something that has become increasingly popular, especially uh, within recent uh, months. Um, but a lot of people, I, I find, still aren't really quite sure what it is, or they're, they just hear about it and they think it's just like some, you know, get-rich-quick uh, sort of scheme or something like that. And that's obviously not what it is. But I want to break it down um, into... It's, it's more detailed on what exactly Bitcoin is. So if you can, please explain to us what, the, uh, what some of the basics of Bitcoin is and why did Bitcoin happen? Uh, for decades, people had wanted some kind of digital money. When the internet came along, that kind of intensified the search for some way to uh, find a, a, a way to make a payment system on the internet with its own currency that was not part of the uh, national money stock. And there were many attempts to do this between uh, the late late 90s all the way through the, the 2000s. And it kept falling apart for various reasons. But the, the big problem with, with money is it, it's got to be scarce. Uh, it's, and if it and if it's not a scarce good, uh, uh, it will never obtain value. And if it does obtain value, it will lose its value, as many hyperinflations in history have shown. So it's not it's not possible to to just create a money, for example, out of uh, leaves that fall from the trees. You know, or if if or if I put uh, right, uh, you know, uh, on a napkin, draw a picture of a smiley face, and call it a tucker. Um, you know, that's not not likely to ever become money uh, because it could be infinitely reproduced by anybody. So that was that was a grave challenge. It was one of many challenges, but that was the the big problem. So the attempts throughout the early 2000s, late 90s and early 2000s to create digital 
cash really kind of faltered because the internet poses a, a special difficulty for reproduction. I mean, it, the internet is nothing if not a gigantic copy machine. I mean, that's sort of what right. it got really good at at the very outset. So the great challenge of, of making Bitcoin was to figure out how to create scarce units that were distinct and carried with them uh, immutable information about ownership rights. So that was that was the great challenge. And in 2008, there was a white paper that came out by an anonymous programmer, Satoshi Nakamoto. Nobody knows what happened to him uh, or really who he is because he disappeared after 2010. But uh, the white paper proposed that this problem of scarcity be solved by a, uh, a, a cloud-based ledger that was decentralized so that, so that everybody could look at it simultaneously and anybody could become a node and that node would be updated immediately. And that solved the problem of trust in many ways because uh, you know, databases and, and ledgers are, have typically always been centralized in the history of the world, dating back from the ancient world to the present. Now, for the first time, we have the technology to create a decentralized ledger. And so uh, he, he programmed it uh, with, with uh, very careful algorithms uh, to, uh, to only create a certain number of units um, on, a, on a scheduled basis and scarcified them on into the future. Uh, so that you know that there's a limit to the number of bitcoins that could be created, and then applied a, a, a kind of a proof of work standard for obtaining initial ownership. So, um, and what that means is that that, that if you volunteer your uh, processing time to confirming transactions, then you would have sort of first dibs on the on the newly created uh, units, and uh, and then. And then, and wanting to get away from the problem of personal identity and trust, like you know, your bank always wants to know everything about you, um, what the system did is it used cryptography to just uh, establish, you know, random strings of numbers that were associated with with each ownership right, and allowed people to trade those ownership rights through double key uh, cryptography. So it's public keys and private keys matching up, linking, hooking up, and and trading. Uh, on the cloud, so it's 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 kind of a <clears throat> it's an amazingly brilliant technological solution. The upshot of which was that it created a, a cash for the internet. Uh, it it complies in every sense with all the normal standards of money. So you've got divisibility, you've got uniformity of quality and scarcity and fungibility, and then you add to it uh, weightlessness and spacelessness. You've got what looks like the perfect money, and uh, we we need to keep in mind that you know when the when the so-called Genesis block came out in January of 2009, uh, Bitcoin was worth absolutely nothing, and that's where it stayed for the next ten months because the early users had to kind of pound on the program, make sure it worked, uh, make sure it wouldn't wouldn't crash, make sure that the cryptography uh, uh, held that you wouldn't we weren't going to get you know couldn't be cracked, so your your coins would be stalled stolen to make sure that it did really work on a peer-to-peer -peer basis make sure it was fast and cheap and so on that the miners would in, in fact get their new coins and 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 after 10 months it it did seem to that hold up i mean there were a lot of tweaks in the code that that happened over over the course of 2009 but on october 5th of 2009 for the very first time uh, there was a first posted price and it was 
uh, one Bitcoin is worth one sixteenth of a penny. And that was by itself kind of a proof of concept that this thing could obtain value. Um, can you explain to me <clears throat> real quick the difference between um, Bitcoin and the blockchain and, and how those two are sort of inseparable? Sure. The uh, the blockchain is the distributed ledger. Um, it's literally it's called a blockchain because it's a chain of blocks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> blocks come out every ten minutes, and they uh, and it, it both releases new coins and carries with it evidence of of transactions that have taken place. So that the uh, so the ledger changes, and that each of these blocks are are linked together in one one big chain. Um, it in effect what it what it really is is a uh, it, it, be, it becomes the payment system, I guess you could say, for the money. The money itself is Bitcoin, which Bitcoin is it. You know, it's it's a kind of a, a kind of a metaphor in this world. Almost everything is a metaphor: wallets and chains and blocks and coins. I and mean, they're, they're all just ways of mining. They're, they're ways we speak to help us understand what is really just a bunch of math. You know, mm -hmm. and so Bitcoin is a, 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 a I think in, in old monetary economics they used to call it a numeraire. It's just a a kind of a a, a unit uh, that carries value. It's a it's essentially a, a, an, a, a it's it's essentially an ownership claim. It's it's it says you know this this is mine, and and I want everybody to recognize that this is mine, and now I'm going to give it to you. And so that's that's what Bitcoin is, and the blockchain is just the the carrier of that information. Uh, the reason why people got really tripped up over this subject very early on is that in our lifetimes, in the normal course of our lives, and this has been true for, actually it's going to say for the last hundred years, but it's really true forever, right. that our payment systems and our monies have been separate. You know, so, so we've got the dollar, we've got the euro, we've got the yen, and then we've got PayPal and Visa and Venmo and so on. But these were not the same thing. You know, there were always payment systems and monies were always different. Always different, and and so with with Bitcoin, you had now the first time they were they were tied together, and it's precisely because of the sort of unity of payment systems and money that the money obtained value. Like if you could somehow separate Bitcoin from the blockchain, like with it, put a meat cleaver down the middle of it, and say, okay, you're no longer belong to that, the value of Bitcoin would fall to zero. The the reason that Bitcoin obtained value in the, in the first place is because it's because of its uh, intimate relationship with, with the distributed ledger itself. So if I was, if I were to, to use an analogy, if you had a, a, a firearm without any ammunition, the firearm would essentially just be a, a piece of metal and, and it'd be worthless. Um, there would be no value to it whatsoever, but because it, it, uh, it is able to fire that ammunition, it is able to sell for hundreds and sometimes thousands of dollars. Yeah, that's not a bad way to put it. I mean, you made me think of another another analogy. Uh, let's just say that uh, you had a car, but it had no spark plugs, and 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 the the car was free. Like the the, the blockchain is is free. Um, so uh, so the, every part of the car was a zero price, and then you uh, you had the, the the spark plugs added to it, and suddenly you made it valuable because it could get from here to there. Um, then the spark plugs would somehow carry the whole of the value of the car itself. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so what's, what's the difference between Bitcoin, Bitcoin and, and say some other uh, cryptocurrencies like uh, Litecoin and Ethereum and, and like that? And are, do they operate basically under the same premise? Um, yeah, uh, let's talk about that. Um, so just so we remember, the Bitcoin was the first one out of the gate. Right. But early on, people used to, and I, I was in arguments with this stuff back in 2013, where people would say to me, all right, you say that Bitcoin is a scarce good, but actually the blockchain itself can be infinitely reproduced, and anybody can create a, a blockchain. I mean, it's just it's copy-paste, you know? And so you can have all the blockchains you want. You can have 10, you can have 10,000, you can have a trillion blockchains. So that's an interesting point. I mean, people would say there's going to be an overall inflation of, of, of the numbers of cryptocurrencies. Uh, the point is that inflation takes place within the same good, not, not other goods. So you can't cause an inflation um, by, by creating a, a whole bunch of different kinds of monetary units. What what you cause inflation by is creating a bunch of the same, of uh, a bunch of copies of the same unit. So um, what happened pr pretty early on is that that's, this indeed happened that that the blockchain was copied and 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 rewritten slightly for different purposes. So I think one of the very first movers in the space was Litecoin, which was kind of designed to be the silver relative to the gold of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And so at a faster rate of creation, it was easier to mine. Um, it had a few tweaks in the code, it basically used a proof of work. Um, and so it was very much like Bitcoin, except, except a faster rate of creation. I mean, it was really just to continue the analogy with gold. I mean, it was, it was the silver. And then, um, and then once people got into act, there were many of these things that we used to call altcoins that were being created all over the place. Now, since in, since in, in the last three years, uh, really last, I guess, four years, yeah. things have become really, really sophisticated, though. And and it's, it's no longer the kind of world we used to live in. And now we see, uh, um, now, now we see, now we see that uh, people are, are doing things like uh, creating the Ethereum network, which is a very different uh, kind of structure from the, from the blockchain. It's, it's similar technology, except it uses its own scripting language mm -hmm. and invites people to build applications within it. And that itself is tokenized in the form of an ether. There is a fork in that, so now we've got two versions of of Ether out there, one Ethereum Classic and one, uh, the, 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 I guess you could say the canonical Ethereum network. Um, but, th but then there, a very interesting thing happened. I, I began to write about this in, and I think it was 2014, and I'm not, I'm not, a, a, like a, my profession isn't writing code. Uh, so, yeah. um, but I, I did notice, and I noticed there was a kind of, like people in the Bitcoin world were by 2014 completely astonished at what was happening. I mean, like every dream that that Satoshi ever had was weirdly coming true. And I think I can say with confidence that even the people that were involved in the beginning never expected Bitcoin to to do as well. I mean, they might have said publicly they think it's going to the moon, you know, but once it actually began to happen, it just became kind of amazing and. What I noticed happening in, in 2014 was a kind of uh, uh, a conservative ethos had come over the, uh, the the core developers 
And it became very diff difficult to obtain any kind of consensus among developers for any changes in the code. And there were several legacy aspects of the code that, that, that really were crying out for some kind of change. And one of which was there was a limit on the size of the blocks that was imposed in 2010 by Satoshi uh, of one megabyte. Well, you know, with, with block size that small, the, the, the network could not scale to anywhere near becoming something like a normal money that people could use. And so this kind of conservatism just it really affected Bitcoin core. And that opened up opportunities for other coins to, to introduce other um, things like, you know, uh, privacy controls and, um, uh, and, and the capacity to sort of separate different kinds of information on the block so you could make uh, more efficient exchanges. And so all these other coins start coming out, you know, like, uh, Dash and Zcash and Monero and and now, I think Coin Market Cap lists. I think they I think they record the uh, market value of uh, maybe uh, maybe two or three thousand coins at this point. So, um, and and each of them is a little different. Sometimes the, the difference is only just in branding. Right. Uh, one of the most hilarious ones is Dogecoin. You know, like there's this guy who's like trolling you know the crypt crypto world he said this whole thing is ridiculous you know um i could make a coin called you know on the based on the internet name of doge and call it dogecoin and it's just a copy of litecoin and so the 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 crypto community kind of trolled him back by actually mining dogecoin and it, <laughs> and today it's doing very very well actually i don't think it's hilarious <laughs> But I, I totally get why people are, you know, deeply suspicious of it, I guess, because, I mean, I was. I mean, it took me a very long time to kind of come to terms with that. I, I, was, I was mentally um, and really intellectually stumped by, by, the, by, by the, this presumption that you could never create a money and cause it to come into existence. I mean, I... I've gotten a little turned around in my thinking because I thought that's sort of what Mises, Ludovic Mises had taught, you know, that mm -hmm. you can't just create a money out of nowhere and cause it to obtain value, that it had to have a previous value on the market, which I always thought that previous value meant that it had to somehow grow out of barter, you know, so right. uh, like fish or, you know, shells or, you know, gold or salt or something like that. Like it had to have a market value and then people would gradually discover, oh, I will obtain this. Uh, this this commodity not for consumption but with based on the confidence that i have that it will be in the future used by other traders and so therefore it, it obtains a special kind of monetary value and a special good i thought that was the only way for money to come into existence and i could not understand how some dude could you know, sit down on a, on a on a computer and type a money into existence it, stri it struck me as just automatically ridiculous yeah and i i had uh, similar uh, I guess reservations, if you will, about about many of those uh, things until I realized uh, how exactly Bitcoin and and other cryptocurrencies actually obtain their value. Because I always thought, you know, it has to be backed by something physical or something that that's you know scarce um, in order for it to obtain its value. And it wasn't until very recently that I I realized, oh, you know, 
Bitcoin actually is scarce and actually actually uh, has has value outside of of just the physicals like like gold or or, oh, or silver. Listen, I, know, I know exactly what you mean. It, I think it was February of 2013. Um, I had been um, I sold my first. I sold a tie for 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 I don't know what it was six bitcoins or something like that at the time. It's just ridiculous in retrospect. Mm -hmm. And and I was sure that I had a feeling that Bitcoin really meant something. I felt like it was actually something real, you know. Right, right, right. It was a, a physical coin that you could actually hold in your hand or, or something like that. And and didn't they try to like make a few like literal bitcoins um, to to try to illustrate to people what it actually is and help them understand that? No, oh, those those are kind of cool. There's these. Uh, um, coins that were made, I forget now what company made them, and they embedded the QR codes for the for the access to, to the Bitcoin within the, the coin itself, and they began to sell for really high value, and the U.S. Treasury Department went after them and, hmm. and shut them down. But listen, um, just so I can, so I can address this, this, this point about pre-existing value and barter and all this kind of stuff. Um, sure. Well, actually, let me just back up slightly. So in February 2013, I tried to I was trying to figure out why this thing had value. So I, I discovered exactly what you just said. I mean, it took me back in those days. It was very difficult to find any reading material on the topic at all that wasn't so technical as to be completely forbidding. You know, I couldn't I couldn't really understand. It. I read the white paper. Now I read the white paper and I understand it. But back in right. those days, I couldn't understand a word of it. Um, so I had to read a book on cryptography, you know, it, it took me a long time intellectually to figure this out. And I was reading somewhere, I think it might have been a Wired Magazine article, and Wired Magazine back in those days, and I don't know, maybe still is, was like really against Bitcoin. But very two-thirds of the way into the article, there was just a passing reference to the fact that there's an that there's a, a, a protocol governing, governing the creation of these units and that there was an upward limit <clears throat> on them. And that's what did it for me. I read that and I went, oh, okay, it's got a monetary property. So they've hacked the digital world to create a kind of artificial scarcity. So that was the first clue. Um, and that, okay, this, this is like money. You know? So I got excited about that and I jumped on that. And I think it was after I, I read that one sentence that I wrote my first article on Bitcoin. But it still took me six months or 12 months from then to solve this whole problem of, you know, the objection that, that money can't be, can't be made out of nothing that's got to emerge from barter. And I went back and I read um, Mises's original book, book on this topic, it was written in 1912, where he makes this point that, um, and, it's, and it's an obscure point, it's a small point, and it's a point raised against the Chicago school or something like that at the time, but um, it was a point to try to solve what was considered to be a puzzle of time, like the infinite regress between um, uh, the, the uh, use value and the price of money. Like you can't explain one in terms of the other forever, or else you're just going to get into an infinite regress. So, like, so what Mises asked the question: like, what what determines the original um, price of money in terms of goods? And his answer was that it is the exchange relationships that it obtained before it became money. So he says, he concludes from this, that in order for something to have to become a money, it has to have, and this is the crucial words, use value. 
Okay, so I read that. Now later, by the 1940s, everybody had rendered that as being, it had to have, uh, it had to be a commodity, you know. Well, I thought about that, that term use value, and I realized the word, the, the phrase use value could describe not just a commodity, it could also describe a service. And if that service is the capacity to sort of bundle up, you know, uh, units of, or packages of information in immutable forms and port them peer to peer, regardless of um, geography, that is something that's never been technologically uh, possible before. And that has an infinite number of uses, as many uses as you can think any deals you want to make with another person. If you can make that deal and make it secure, uh, um, a, a, you know, across large distances, that's a, that's a huge service. So I realized that the whole problem of use value was explained by the blockchain. That leads to a really good segue, actually, because um, the the philosophy I think of Bitcoin is what is really exciting, and and what uh, the the potential that it has. It's it's right in line with the philosophies of liberty. Um, it's right in line with the with the ideas of a truly free market, um, and the the potential that it has in the future is is just incredible and revolutionary. Um, so so talk to me a, a little bit about some of some of the uh, the philosophies that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general have with well, the libertarian uh, ideologies. Right. Yeah, I think it's kind of. Uh... You know, it's interesting because there is there is a deep relationship between, uh, you know, the cypherpunk movement uh, of the of the two thousands, and 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 libertarianism and the longing for a world without states and all that kind of stuff, a, a flattening of hierarchies and a kind of radical, democratic outlook on life. Um, but, and th that might have inspired the creation of Bitcoin. I don't think, uh, technologically speaking, Bitcoin is itself libertarian in, in any sense but it does it does lead you to libertarian conclusions I mean for one thing uh, I think it's really intriguing to think that 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 Bitcoin was never uh, invented by a central committee anywhere it wasn't mm -hmm. didn't come from from the academia it didn't come from um, the Treasury Department it didn't come from a coalition of bankers it didn't come from the Federal Reserve it, it, it was it was it was just a product of of tinkering on the internet among a small crowd of, of code geeks and, and that's it, you know, and the, which is a, an amazing way for you know, innovation on the scale to happen. I mean, it illustrates the capacity of humanity to solve its problems without, without central planning. Um, there's a certain statelessness embedded in Bitcoin too, because it doesn't care about borders, and governments care about borders. They care about jurisdictional geography, you know, and, and Bitcoin doesn't care at all. And also governments are really good at dealing with the physical world. You know, they, they, they can move gold around. They can you know, break down your door at night. You know, they can shoot you. They can steal your stuff. They're not so good at controlling the digital world, <clears throat> uh, especially when cryptography is involved in, in distributed networks. So... It tends to be elusive of any kind of state control. I mean, you can you can ban Bitcoin all you want. It's not it's not going anywhere. It's like trying to ban algebra. You know. I mean, right. Yeah. Uh, I, I I think that's that's really uh, really quite fascinating because I remember back in the two thousand I think it was two thousand eleven when the when the Arab Spring happened and um, 
the 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 government of Egypt was trying to crack down on the protests, but they weren't able to actually do it because of, of social media. Um, and they, they tried to ban that, and eventually they just failed at it. Um, and now with uh, what is going on right now in Iran, I, I just read an article the other day about how um, people are actually using Bitcoin to get around the government in Iran which is obviously one of the the most authoritarian governments in the world, and use Bitcoin to actually get around that so that they can continue their demonstrations and continue their protests. And I think that is one of the most most liberating things I, I've I've read in a while. Yeah, it's uh, it's so great, and you know the other wonderful thing about this, of course, is that. Um, you know, I, I think most of humanity is unbanked. You know, they don't have access to banks like you and I have. Right. Um, and so that's terrible because you need, especially in the age of um, of the internet. I mean, anybody who can do something valuable and sell sell a valuable skill to anybody else in the world needs a kind of access to some monetary unit to uh, create a, a unit of calculation to to make deals, basically. And Bitcoin makes that possible for the first time. Uh, do, do you see a certain trend happening right now where uh, with not just Bitcoin, but in it, I, I've noticed that in virtually almost every service that uh, that there is, the middleman is being cut out. For example, um, if you look at something like Uber, uh, the, the middleman is taken out uh, from the taxi companies and it's, it's the free market providing uh, an answer to to our problems in the past, but with this, it's actually the banks and the government that's being cut out from it. Um, yeah. is, is this just just something that's going to just liberate the entire world in, in a way that that we haven't really seen or experienced before? Well, disintermediation and peer to peer commerce is 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 what we want to do anyway. I mean, it's 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 it, the only thing that's ever limited us from doing from engaging this kind of uh, trade has been uh, technological uh, you know i remember um, again not to go back to Mises, but i always seem to but in his in 19 book nation state and economy he talked about uh the right of of of, of groups to secede from larger groups you know mm -hmm. uh, basically you know secession as a kind of a model of political disintermediation and he said he says makes a passing comment if it were technologically possible to reduce the right of secession down to the individual level it would have to be done well it wasn't technologically possible in 1919 but it is possible in 2018 to do this so i i, I think this is going to continue to be you know the the, the sort of the driving trajectory that we're headed in in all aspects of our of our lives um, and disintermediation is a big word, but what it does, what it really means is let, let's deal with each other uh, rather than just relying on trusted third parties all the time. And if you think about those trusted third parties, people you know, think of credit agencies or insurers or uh, lawyers or banks, but at the, actually the biggest trusted third party and, and the most expensive and really destru most destructively violent one is government itself. So I think there's an aspect of this dis disintermediation technology that does threaten the status of government. And I, I don't think it's at all um, a surprise that we've seen since the invention of Bitcoin um, confidence in government just 
just plummet since basically since 2008. It's just plummeted. You know, I was looking at the data the other day, and it's actually kind of incredible to think that back in the 1960s, like like early 1960s, confidence in government to do the right thing was 75 and 80 percent of the population. Goodness. I mean, it's amazing. And now it's down to something like 18 percent. Right. I, I, I don't know of anybody who can who can say the entire government, they have a, a full confidence in, in, uh, in the government to do what's right. No, it's 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 so low right now. But it's just the whole thing is, is amazing. I was looking at the chart the other day and I thought, you know, look at this chart. It was a, a chart from Pew Research. They track, they've been tracking this stuff since, they, since uh, the 1950s. And it's just this this devastating long slide. And and the slide is not generational at all. I mean, it this covers all groups, whether so it's old or young or anything. Mm. It's it's everybody. Like like there's something about government that's just that's no longer inspiring the population. And this is my own view that, you know, you you really can't maintain gigantic structures of uh, uh, that are uh, of government that are ex- expensive and um uh, and destructive and you know uh, uh so imposing on every business and every product and every aspect of your life with that level of unpopularity it's just it's really not sustainable once things get you know, once once you get a you know a mass of people that are just rolling their eyes constantly like oh god here we go again um you, you're really going to see countervailing pressures that are going to work towards uh, dismantling those structures of power. And I think that's what we've got going on right now. I mean, the, this is one way to understand the news that you get, you know, every single day. I, I mean, the headlines this morning are all about how the Justice Department is uh, going to try to roll back some um, uh, marijuana legalization that's taking place yeah. in the States. And, you know, you read that. And you do, you just wonder, like, what is going to be the effect of this? I mean, the, I, you know, I got to tell you that from my personal point of view, I'm just, you know, pot is not really my thing. I don't, I don't really get it at all. I mean, I'm, I'm always kind of excluded from the pot parties and nobody invites me to their after party. <laughs> like, I'm just like not part of that culture, unfortunately. I mean, right. fortunately or unfortunately, it's just not my thing, you know, for whatever reason. And. I don't know why that is. I mean, I don't have an explanation for it. You know, to <laughs> but, 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 what's what's striking to me about it is that um, uh, among my uh, my friends who who are into this stuff, I mean, the level of intensity of attachment to this and their conviction that this is not a harmful substance substance that actually improves their lives a lot. Um, by the way, I don't have a, I don't have a problem with. Um, uh, Mind altering substances, obviously. I, you know, drink wine with dinner and stuff, you know. Right. Uh, but uh, but pasta never really been my thing. But I'm going to be curious to see what what happens here. I just I have a hard time believing that the federal government's actually capable of putting this genie back in the bottle. I just I just don't believe it. Yeah, and and not to get too uh, too off track. I do want to comment on that though a little bit. I think that is going to to uh, if if anything, it might lead up to a, a massive legal battle in the capacity that um, that same sex marriage uh, did obviously in, in the earlier part of the decade, uh, and, and we possibly could see something similar occur 
to where uh, to where the Supreme Court might have to make a, a final decision on that, whether or not I would obviously prefer it to be uh, left to the states, but but I, I certainly see that as a as a real possibility. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I think it's going to be legal, but I don't. I mean, even more than that. I mean, just the the amount of public anger that that I suspect is about to be unleashed. Um, I think it's just going to uh, amaze people. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I, you know, I haven't looked yet, but, um, but I, I see now that the story just went up on the New York Times front page and it's already got 552 comments. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So, and I bet not even one of them is sympathetic. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> Especially when there are so many other problems that, uh, that the federal government could, be going after instead of instead uh, of some some pot smokers uh, living living their lives peacefully. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I I am uh, I am kind of taken aback by a bit of the the beautiful symbolism going back to Bitcoin a little bit of how it emerged right as soon as the financial crisis essentially happened as as almost a response to that. I, I find that so fascinating. Yeah, the timing is uncanny, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And the earliest block that came out, the Genesis block, was something like the fourth or fifth trade you see on the early ledger. Um, Satoshi actually embedded a, a headline from from the Times of London, I think, uh, about a bank collapsing. So there's no question that this is motivated by uh, by the perception that you know our large scale financial institutions were actually vulnerable, and and that the people needed a more secure and reliable uh, store of value, you know, uh, that that lived outside these corrupt institutions. So that that was a driving factor behind the creation of Bitcoin. Uh, I don't think there's any question. Um, you know, uh, as long as we, you know, we've kind of gone over a lot of the history, you know, it might be good to sort of update us uh, where we are at the present. You know, I was looking at the data this morning for the top performing, and by performing I mean the rise, rises in value, uh, top performing um, cryptos in 2017. And you can't believe it, but Bitcoin was number 14. Really? Yes. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Really that's, yeah, that's that's uh, that's that's quite something because I, I think that uh, speaks much to not just um, to to Bitcoin, but to the cryptocurrency field as a whole. It's it's not just a, a Bitcoin phase, but it's an entire uh, uh, restructuring of, of of finances. Right. Uh, that's right. That's right. And and I I, would, I do wonder about the future of Bitcoin sometimes. Um, you know, uh, what happened in August of this year is we saw a fork among some longtime uh, users of, of Bitcoin that actually forked, forked uh, the chain and created uh, the, basically it's the exact same thing as Bitcoin except with larger block sizes so that you could actually start sending it cheaper. Like it was disaster happened early, earlier in 2017 that everybody had expected that the fees, miners' fees went through the roof because the network had become over, too overcrowded. And it became, you know, the, the, the currency that we loved, that we knew and loved, you know, that was so cheap and easy to, 
send suddenly became slow and expensive. So a uh, fork happened with Bitcoin Cash, and it's Bitcoin Cash has done, uh, I think, a, a lot better than anybody really expected. And and now it's kind of a part of the wallet wallet solutions at, at all the main exchanges, and you can hide, uh, can hold it. And I, I think young people, very young people, uh, actually prefer it uh, just because it's easy to send back and forth. So I don't know. I don't think I don't know that the status of of Bitcoin core is guaranteed you know it might eventually become you know it sounds crazy to say but it, it might eventually become like some of the earliest computers or their the earliest email systems i mean nobody thinks about CompuServe, earthlink or aol anymore rather right, yeah long gone uh everybody gives them credit for being out there first but just because you're first doesn't doesn't mean you have a guaranteed spot so i don't I don't know. I mean, I'm 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 intrigued by uh, the, the by the success of, of some of these uh, these other crypto assets, and that's a critical thing to understand. I mean, let me just read you the data. Actually, I can look at it right now. Um, uh, in the in the crypto asset sector as a whole, um, including coins and and assets and tokenized services of all sorts. Um, we've got a market cap now that is at seven hundred and seventy-five uh, billion dollars. So we're we're approaching a one trillion dollar market cap. Wow, uh, which is incredible. And and this is the incredible figure that I never thought I would see. Uh, the Bitcoin core dominance of that of that market is only thirty-two percent. So it's 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 not in any uh, way, shape, or form a, a monopoly of sorts in in the crypto in the crypto fields. No, it's it's. Uh, I mean, just looking at the at the uh, the history of its dominance, you can you can look at it and see it for yourself that it's just declined and declined and declined. I mean, it's it, it went from 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 ninety percent in. Um, April of 2013, um, all the way down. It's really taken a tumble uh, this year, in particular, down all the way down to 32 percent. I think that's that's so fascinating too, because uh, not not to get too off track, but um, you know we've we've always been told that without governments, uh, there you know monopolies will form and and these these giant single industries will control a, every aspect of your life. And here's an example of something where there's virtually no government in it whatsoever, and yet the market has completely um, completely made, made Bitcoin really try, to, really try to compete for itself uh -huh. without any yeah. government intervention whatsoever. Yeah, and I, I don't see Bitcoin Core actually adapting. So there's there's certain things that 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 uh, that that old old Bitcoin is is trying to do to to deal with this problem. Um, the most famous of which is called SegWit, and it's a, a kind of a a tool that allows a segregated witness, so-called. It just takes extraneous information off the blocks and puts it in separate places, and and permits the creation of all kind of sister and side chains. To, to handle small transactions and basically tries to convert uh, Bitcoin into a, a sort of a final settlement layer. Um, but the, the problem is that a lot of these networks that, 
that they're all bragging are coming never seem to actually arrive. And this is a problem because right now, I mean, the, the crypto market is both short term and long term, but and both are important. Um, you can't you can't bet on the long term without recognizing what's going on in the short term, and you can't just think about short term without recognizing what may happen in the long term. If you want to if you want to pick successful coins in this market or make any kind of market predictions, you have to keep both in mind. And and you know, I'm looking at that Bitcoin dominance of the market at 32 percent and thinking. You know, at what point are people going to go, you know, maybe we should have been a little more aggressive in our development efforts. Maybe we should have addressed the problem of high fees earlier. Maybe it's it's not enough just to tell people, you know, buy and hold. You know, uh, maybe there's there's more that needs to be done uh, to make this a, a useful, not just a store of value, but a, a real means of exchange. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking at some point that the sort of big Bitcoin uberalists or the, or the so-called maximalists, are going to have to recognize that not everything went exactly as they planned, which is, which again is fine. I mean, I love the idea of, a, of choice in currency. I love the idea of a of denationalized money and having, you know, a thousand different crypto assets and having people not know for sure which one is going to be the dominant one. This is sort of the way the market works. We haven't had a market in money in in any of our lifetimes. Yeah, and that's that's a that's a really promising future, I think, uh, to to look forward to. Is even if it's not Bitcoin, just the fact that this is uh, just the all the the cryptos um, in general are completely revolutionizing all of this, and it's really bringing what we have been missing in our uh, monetary system for all of our lives, and that is actual competition. Right. That's that's and Hayek says this in one of his last books, uh, the Fatal Conceit, and he he talks about what the consequences of the absence of competition and money has had, and it's just degraded our monetary systems, it has bloated our governments, diminished human liberty. Uh, it was it was a fateful error that we we took a uh, hundred years ago with this kind of monopolization of banking and and centralization of money and credit. It was. It was a catastrophic decision. I mean, if if we had done that to shoes, you know, we'd still be wearing, you know, uh, shoes of a hundred years ago. If we had done that to cars, we'd all be driving around Model Ts at best, right. but they'd yeah. be all broken down. You know, uh, you can't you can't freeze something in place like that. It's just I just don't think that people fully understood that that's what was going on. But that I mean, Bitcoin has shown us that that is exactly what happened. We're gonna we're gonna look back in in history at this and say why didn't we uh, why didn't we try to think of something like this sooner? I think so, um, Jeffrey. It's it's really been a good time uh, speaking with you here. I I, I really hope uh, people really get a lot out of this episode because I certainly did. Um, where can people find you online and on uh, on social media? Sure. Um, I've got a private Facebook page and a public Facebook page, which is Jeffrey Tucker official, I think it's something like that. And my Twitter is Jeffrey A. Tucker. And um, I'm writing every day at my new position as editorial director of the American Institute for Economic Research, which I'm very, very honored and thrilled to have that position. And the website. Thank you. The website is AIER.org. Alrighty. Uh, thank you very much for, for joining us here on, on Mill Liberty. Uh, we 
will be back next week. And um, you can follow me at Caleb Franz on Twitter, and you can follow the show at Miliberty on Twitter. Um, and be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes so that you will never miss an episode or an update. And until next week, we'll see you.